0: Thank you for listening to the Your Mindful Coach podcast. This is Mark Balser. If you'd like to learn more, visit my website, www.yourmindfulcoach.com, or send an email to mark, that's M-A-R-C, at yourmindfulcoach.com. While I've entitled this talk, Get Busy Living, the subtitle is really, What Can We Learn from Our Mortality? you're probably asking, what does Mark know about mortality? And that's pretty much the point. (laughs) Not much. I, like so many others, spend most of my life pushing away my mortality, trying to cover up the march of life toward an end, bristling at uncertainty and impermanence, and trying to make things a certain way and then make them stay that way. I don't know much about mortality, but I do know that when I take a step back, jump out of the autopilot of to-do lists and everyday responsibilities, I become more connected with what's actually happening. So this talk really isn't about death, it's about life. How to live based on the knowledge that one day we won't be here. Allowing our knowledge and relationship with a finite existence to inform our actions in the world. And of course, this isn't to suggest one start elaborate preparations for their deaths and assume the worst. It can be all too easy to recognize a chronic injury or a heartbreaking end to a relationship and begin to die before one is dead. But having a relationship with the change happening in our lives, our hearts, our bodies, is a healthy way to make contact with what's really happening now and live authentically. As Andy Dufresne said in Shawshank Redemption, I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really get busy living or get busy dying. Confronting our mortality isn't about how to die, but how to live. What really matters in our life? One question I like to ask myself when building my daily list of to dos is does it have heart? When I follow my heart, I might not get as much done, but what I get done, I do with passion and purpose and intent. In meditation, there are many ways we can work with our mortality. Most simply, the practice of offering the word living with each in-breath and dying with each out-breath recognizes the rising and falling of many small beginnings and endings, even a simple breath. With each breath, we have a new opportunity for presence and intimacy with our experience. There's no need to judge or make things a certain way. Just observe the breath as it comes and goes. This can also serve as a renunciation, a letting go, recognizing we have this deep, life-giving breath, and then releasing it to begin again. You might try this for just a few moments. Breathing in. Breathing out, living, dying, living, dying, just repeating those two words as you breathe in and breathe out. So as this talk concludes, I'll offer a longer guided meditation, which includes the wisdom of teachers Michael Stone, Jonathan Faust, Jack Kornfield, and as I talk, we'll take some breaks for brief reflections as well. But we'll begin with a simple model for confronting our mortality, offered by meditation teacher Frank Ostaseski. One of my favorite teachers is Frank Ostaseski. I met Frank on a West Coast adventure in 2013. He was the guest teacher of a meditation talk where Frank offered the practice of strong back, soft front. This practice cultivates a fierce vulnerability, which combines the stability and grounding of values, purpose, and literal physical foundations in the body with the openness of a curious non-judging heart. It's a way to meet our experience. Frank describes how many of us spend our lives in just the opposite stance, with a hard front, afraid of being taken advantage of, and shielded from the inevitable suffering that is heading our way. When paired with a weak back, we can crumble and collapse upon the weight of our own suffering. I've incorporated this teaching into my own practice, which gave me some security as I explored the pain in my heart. Ostaseski recently published his first book, The Five Intentions, discovering what death can teach us about living fully. Frank describes how he was scheduled to give a long speech, which became a very short speech after the previous speakers had gone well over their time allotment. So Frank scribbled these five invitations on a cocktail napkin and concisely shared his wisdom as a hospice worker and meditation teacher in the brief time he was given. Frank began his work in the 80s, caring for people in San Francisco during the height of the AIDS epidemic and was the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project. His five invitations are don't wait. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Bring your whole self to the experience. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. And finally, cultivate don't know mind. So I'll go through these in order, starting with don't wait. In a sense, this is the simplest, but also the hardest of the five. Ostaseski writes about the countless visitors to his hospice that suddenly came face-to-face with their death and that discovered they had a lot of work to do. Saying goodbye, reconciling, offering and receiving forgiveness. Jack Kornfield tells of the two things people ask as they are dying. Was I loved? And did I love well? So one important step is to share your feelings of love with those that are important to you, every day. Simple words and acts such as these can transform the mundane into the divine. The presence of friends and family is valuable to this process, but it must start even earlier. Cultivating a practice of forgiveness, which is not an explicit act, but rather a process that happens not only externally, but as an inner recognition that with forgiveness we give up all hope, for a better past we may not have a relationship with one who has wronged us but we confront the reality of what is real and act out of a place of knowing letting our grasps of stories identities and habits that keep us stuck in a small self one wants things certain and controlled so part of don't wait is allowing for some vulnerability taking risks and allowing for failure. A handful of people have received attribution for the quote, start before you're ready. We may not know how to start the conversation or might have baggage to get through, but taking the first step is critical. We'll be hearing more about poet David White, but he has this to say about applying don't wait to not just your external relationships, but your internal experience. It's called start close in. Start close in, don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing, close in, the step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know, the pale ground beneath your feet, your own way of starting the conversation. Start with your own question, Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To find another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes a private ear listening to another. Start right now. Take a small step you can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. White has written, the willingness to look at the transitory nature of existence is not pessimism, but absolute realism. Life is to be taken at the tilt. You do not have forever, and therefore, why wait? Why wait to become a faithful and intimate companion to that initially formidable stranger you called yourself? And that feeds into the second invitation, welcome everything, push away nothing. There's a challenging and enlightening practice offered by teacher Stephen Batchelor. He offers three short phrases that recognize our mortality and offer us the choice of how to respond. If you'd like, you might close your eyes to reflect with me for a few moments. Making yourself comfortable, allowing your body to relax, and then reflect on the following phrases. Death alone is certain. The time of death is uncertain. What should I do? Death alone is certain. The time of death is uncertain. What should I do? Allowing yourself to rest in presence. Letting responses arise without searching for them. And then opening your eyes as you're ready. So what a radical way to say, this is how it is. What will I do next? When I teach uh, high school and middle school students, I often offer them three similar questions. What am I doing? Is it right? What will I do next? It's a way to recognize reality and respond thoughtfully. In denying our mortality, we can find ourselves living very small, going from task to task, day to day. As I described earlier, I found a helpful practice in this arena is to ask myself when I'm making a decision, does it have heart? In fact, I often prepare my to-do lists with one column labeled heart. It often includes long delayed phone calls to friends, time for reading, or perhaps going for a walk, or even anything else that creates a connection with other beings and my environment. I find when I choose those heartening tasks I feel happy and am able to let go of expectations that I've created for myself. Whenever I can truly ask myself, how can I let go of what's not aligned with my heart, I face my mortality and live authentically. Teacher Jonathan Faust offers several more such questions including is what I'm doing resulting in more or less wholesome states and how might I simplify my life and align my actions with my heart good ones to try out I'll include these and more in an upcoming blog post and that brings us to the third invitation bring your whole self to the experience the third invitation built on the concept of welcome everything, push away nothing. They resonate strongly with me through my experience. Years ago, I found myself working a stressful job with long hours in the midst of raising two young children. I was working a stressful job with long hours in the midst of raising two young children. I'd set up what I thought was a solution to having too much to do and too little time. If only I could dedicate 100% of my time to my work and my family, then things would settle down. I'd arrive at work each morning, work as hard as I could for as long as I could, then return home, bringing all my attention to my family. Externally, it worked, but internally, it just created more suffering. Not only was I limiting my experience to work and home, but I was doing my best to Compartmentalized the challenges of each realm so it didn't infect the other. Good luck with that. I'd come home irritable and snippy, bringing the judgment required of an investment manager to decisions about what our family would eat for dinner or when the kids should go to bed. Additionally, I had eliminated my hobbies, seeing them as distractions from my two main focuses. Out went the golf clubs, model airplanes and rockets even exercise. Out went the running. I'd somehow left myself out of the equation. Poet David White describes a situation in his book, The Three Marriages, Reimagining Work, Self, and Relationship. White begins by dissecting the concept of work-life balance, dismissing it in its simplicity and rejecting its tendency to become a whip with which we beat ourselves for not getting that balance quite right. He writes, Poets have never used the word balance for good reason. First of all, it's too obvious and therefore untrustworthy. It is also a deadly boring concept and seems to speak as much to being stuck and immovable as much as to harmony. Instead of compartmentalizing, White argues for an integration of the domains of work, family, and most critically, self. White describes it as a conversation. I had found myself in a situation where I couldn't figure out what I wanted because I wasn't allowing myself the opportunity to make that choice and have that conversation. I wasn't having the conversation with myself. White imagines an inner wholeness that integrates the arenas of life and allows for a changing, impermanent experience. White writes, neglecting this internal marriage, we can easily make ourselves a hostage to the externals of work and the demands of relationship. We find ourselves unable to move in these outer marriages because we have no inner foundation from which to step out with a firm persuasion. It is as if, absent a loving relationship with this inner representation of ourself, we fling ourselves in all directions in our outer lives, looking for love in all the wrong places. Bringing yourself, your whole self to the experience doesn't mean never-ending courage. It is more about recognizing the challenges, suffering, and tribulations in the same heart space as the joys, accomplishments, and celebrations of our lives. Integrating our experience and inhabiting our whole self with the world. The fourth invitation, find a a place to rest in the middle of things. Ostaseski writes, we imagine that we can only find rest by changing our circumstances. So true for us as humans, but that would be a very long wait. The reality is, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. For me, writing served as a place of rest in the midst of chaos. Several years ago, my business was crumbling under the weight of some poor decisions in a stock market that didn't seem to care what we thought was important. Each day, I'd enter a solemn work environment with a sense of impending doom for the future of the business. One practice I began was writing down the three things that were happening right now, just as the stock market would open. I would write, this is not fun. We're losing money. I don't like this. And by writing them down, I could connect with what I was feeling without spinning out a story of what would happen next or how to fix things. This place of rest was brief but sustaining. It didn't change the situation but allowed me some space to process and reflect without feeling I immediately needed to steer the ship in another direction. Mindfulness and meditation are particularly well suited for finding a place of rest in the middle of things. This is because mindfulness requires nothing but what you already have. If you have your breath, your body, you can practice. No need to even close your eyes or be seated in a certain way. No need for bells, smells, or any kind of ritual. In a stressful meeting, during a busy morning getting the kids out of the house, you can always bring your attention back to the rhythm of your breathing to come back to presence. This can last for 5 or 15 minutes, or even just one breath. The practice of mindfulness is about getting distracted and then returning. Returning to that which is true, important, And heartful. The three refuges in Buddhist philosophy are a nice start as well. They are called the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Simply put, it describes love, truth, and connection as refuges that one can turn to. The Sangha is community. Finding a group to practice with or a teacher to guide you can provide that place of rest with some regularity. Seeking the truth, the Dharma, through practice and study, and being a Buddha yourself can serve as this place of rest as well. These refuges help us remember to slow down. To recognize this moment is the only moment we've got. And finally, cultivate don't know mind, another favorite of mine. As a practitioner of meditation, it's very easy to get caught up in the euphoria of building a practice that is nourishing and meaningful. But this can also bring expectations and a hardening of my openness to ideas and opinions. As soon as I start thinking I've figured it all out, it invariably comes crashing down with one more piece of information that contradicts this great insight I thought I had. I think of it as a cycle of knowing and humbling, knowing and humbling. That's not to say I should stop the cycle as I think of it more as a spiral moving generally upward with endless fits and starts. I find myself in conflict with a colleague believing they're just plain wrong to later find out a missing piece of information that helps me recognize the circumstances that shape their opinions and recognizing my truth isn't the absolute truth. Cultivate Don't Mind is about curiosity, not judgment. You may have heard the simple focused breathing meditation instruction, Notice the Quality of Your Breath. It may be deep or shallow, soft, slow, or even rough. But the instruction is not to try to change it or make it a certain way, but instead to observe, to be curious. I wonder why my breath is shallow. This observation alone often softens, lengthens, soothes the breath, without any real effort on the part of the breather. This tool can be particularly helpful with the sensation of anger. Instead of building the story or the court case of why I've been wronged, I can instead ask, what is happening now? All too often, the response lies in fear, jealousy, or arrogance that this isn't about this person, but it's really about what's going on in my own mind. I've created a story to suit my ego. I have a teacher who, when I tell him the trials and travels of life and try to get him to agree with the frustration and injustice I'm feeling, responds, that could be, that could be. Not judging, but recognizing that it doesn't feel good without having to spiral the story or the narrative and try to make it real. So as we become more familiar with our mortality, we can find ourselves less resistant to change, knowing that everything is imper- permanent and exploring that with curiosity, things come and go, including us. Letting go of our expectations is an act of fierce generosity. It opens. And releases. Recognizing our mortality brings us closer to our reality. It reminds us to be present in the moment because that is the only moment we really have. It can help us make good choices, building relationship and writing a story that's bigger than ourselves. At risk of giving the way the ending, I want to share the final lines from Ostaseski's book, He writes of a woman named Sono, who at the end of her life learned about Japanese death poems, which are composed in one's dying days. Sono, who had lived a difficult, unheralded life, set to writing for one for herself. She asked Asaseski to learn it by heart so that it would live on with him. For me, it's a reminder to live, to accept, and to be present for the shifting winds of time. Don't just stand there with your hair turning gray. Soon enough, the seas will sink your little island. So while there is still the illusion of time, set out for another shore. No sense packing a bag. You won't be able to lift it into your boat. Give away all your collections. Take only new seeds and an old stick. Send out some prayers on the wind before you sail. Don't be afraid. Someone knows you're coming. An extra fish has been salted. So that's my talk. I've included a 15-minute guided meditation next that explores these concepts of mortality and offers a way to practice with them. You can also find this practice separately on the Your Mindful Coach podcast, if you'd like to practice another time. Thank you. Your hands resting on the arms of the chair or gently in your lap your thighs, perhaps the table. And begin by sensing the breath. As we go through our day, our breath is generally quite effortless, See if you can connect with that now by just observing the breath, not trying to change it or make it a certain way. Sensing the inhale, sensing the exhale. Feeling it in your body, lungs filling with air, then releasing. In each breath we live and in each breath we die. Elements of our experience come and go. And each breath represents a new beginning, a new ending. You might practice by silently repeating living with each in-breath, dying with each out-breath. Living, dying, living, dying. Allowing these words to be the anchor of your attention and the breath. Living, dying, Our out-breath represents not just dying, but more of a letting go, letting go into each moment, each breath coming in, gently releasing it. So we are just here with the way things are. allowing for an arising and a falling away. Each day, each encounter, each breath, we are reborn. And we may choose what nourishes us on our path. So now releasing the words of this practice, I'll share with you a meditation offered by Jack Kornfield. And the basis of this is that in the Buddhist tradition, the state of our heart, the quality of our heart at the time of death is critical in determining what follows. And so we'll offer a meditation on preparing oneself for death, creating a positive, skillful state of consciousness. So allow yourself to center. Letting your breath be your guide. Gather a sense of your mortality. That this breath, which sustains you and nourishes you, could continue for another 50 years or 20 or one year even just a minute someday this breath will stop this heart will stop and that will be it for this body here one day Gone the next. You might envision yourself in your final breaths as an old man. Visualize yourself surrounded by the important things in your life family, friends, memories. To the extent you're able, sit and feel the reality of death someday. What has mattered in your life? What has really mattered? In bringing this wisdom, how then shall I live? You might reflect back on the life you've lived, remembering or visualizing two good deeds of your life, Few things that you've done that were important, meaningful, helpful. These two good things fill your heart, your mind, your body. Bring the feeling states from that time to your experience now, the feeling you had in yourself, the feeling of others who were involved in this good deed. the states of consciousness that arise as you do that? How do these memories affect your spirit, your mind and body? Recall that these memories are arising as you rest with family and friends at the edge of life, and slowly letting the images. Sensations, thoughts fade away. Taking these last few minutes to reflect on what came up for you. Perhaps sensing, what am I doing now that leads to the wholesome states? How might I simplify my life to align my actions, my speech, with my heart? our external realities, our actions, our behaviors, with a deeply connected and observed internal experience. Now breathing more deeply, more intentionally.